Mormon Stories is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and relies solely upon the support of people like you, its listeners. To help keep the podcast alive or to become a member of the community, please become a monthly subscriber by visiting mormonstories.org and clicking on the donate button on the right side of the page under support. All contributions to Mormon Stories are completely tax deductible and go towards producing the podcast and building communities and programs of support for Mormons like you. Thanks for your support. Welcome to a special edition of uh, Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It is October 23rd, and I am gathered with an all-star uh, panel of of awesome friends and uh, cool people within Mormonism. Um, we are here to discuss uh, yesterday's release of several essays by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yesterday, the date was October 22nd, 2014, and they released upon the world three uh, super important essays that were long awaited about uh, plural marriage. Um, there, th In my count, that, that makes four total essays on, on plural marriage. Um, and the, they sort of go as follows. There's an umbrella essay called Plural Marriage in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is kind of like an overview. Um, and then there are three kind of sub-essays. One is on plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo. One is on plural marriage in families in early Utah, which I think has been around for a bit. Um, and then it'd be nice if these essays had dates, actually. But um, the, the final one that they released also yesterday was called The Manifesto and the End of Plural Marriage, which uh, talks about post-manifesto polygamy. And so we're here to talk about it today with three awesome people. Uh, we have uh, Ladies First, Lindsay Hansen <laughs> Parker, who um, is a bigwig at Sunstone, Sunstone Education Foundation these days. She also is the host of uh, Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. And she's been getting incredibly positive buzz this year uh, for a series she's doing on FMH podcast called uh, A Year of Polygamy, I believe it is. But she's basically going through and talking about each one of Joseph's uh, Joseph Smith's plural wives uh, in detail. So, Lindsay Hanson Park, welcome uh, back to Mormon Stories. Thank you. It's great to be back. And if if you haven't heard Lindsay's uh, interview on Mormon Stories about about her experiences with eating disorders and perfectionism, it is a must listen by all accounts. So, uh, again, Lindsay, we're honored to have you back. That is right. You should listen to me as much as possible. <laughs> And by the way, you're welcome to cross-post this on your podcast if you wish. It's, you're Great. totally welcome. It would make a good addition to our series. Awesome. So also welcome uh, FMH podcast listeners if you end up listening. Um, also, we have with us today uh, uh, John Hamer. Uh, John Hamer has been a, a friend of mine for, I don't know, nine, maybe ten years. Um, he's a former president or co-president of the John Whitmer Historical Association, I believe. Um, he also was part of at least a 
contractor for the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He has a master's in history that specializes, I think, in cartography and map making from the University of Michigan. I'm just pulling this out of my brain here. <laughs> and uh, I, I think he created maps for the Joe Smith Papers Project. And he's just sort of well regarded as one of the most knowledgeable, thoughtful, insightful people in Mormonism. And he's been on Mormon Stories several times uh, about his journey out of Mormonism, his experiences as a, as a gay uh, post-Mormon and Mormon. And his conversion to the community of Christ, where he serves as one of the leaders of the Toronto community of Christ congregation. Now, correct me where I got that wrong, John Hamer. That sounds pretty good. Thanks so much. Great oh. to be back. All right. Great to have you. And then finally, we have back uh, a longtime participant in Mormon stories slash Mormon matters in one way or another. Uh, Jay Nelson Seawright is a professor of political science at Northwestern University. He and his wonderful wife, Taryn, have been on Mormon Stories several times. Originally, is one of the first, I don't know, 30 or so episodes where they talked about their journey out and back into Mormonism. And then in the past year, they reappeared on Mormon Stories uh, to talk about leaving the church after trying to make it work for a second time. Uh, Jason also appeared, along with John Hamer, in some of the early editions of Mormon Matters podcast, where I used to do kind of a panel discussion um, back before Dan Witherspoon took it over. And Jay Nelson Seawright, you're brilliant, and it's an honor to have you back on Mormon Stories. Well, thanks, John. All right, so let's dig into the essays. And um, I guess I want to begin by offering anyone a chance to discuss just the the hierarchy of essays and sort of the church's release of them and, and anything they want to say just about the, the release and, and the the architecture of the essays themselves. Now, Jason, did you want to start with that? Well, so, I mean, it's interesting that the way, that, first of all, the way they've set these up, you have to kind of know what you're looking for or you won't find anything, which uh, for a major release of what must be a great deal of work by an organization like the church is pretty unusual, right? I mean, with, with this... Um, the film they put in theaters and we get 50 bazillion updates and um, emails through wards and whatever. This piece of text, which reflects almost certainly just as much work, um, shows up. <laughs> and then we find out about it for ourselves. So that's always really interesting with these essays. But the other thing that's really interesting... So you're really saying that there's no marketing involved in really advertising them. Is that what you no, mean? No, that's right. They, they uh, kind of appear. Someone tells someone something. There's news in it. It's, it's all viral at... At most. And, but usually a Deseret article follows, right? Yeah, Desert sure. I mean, you know, Peggy Fletcher stack kind of always makes sure there's some news coverage, right? But um, nobody, nobody seems kind of officially excited about discussing these, which is interesting to me. For, this in, seems like a chore church. that needs to, yeah. yes, exactly, yeah. a chore that needs to be done, but not, not a project they're enthusiastic about. And I, I think and, that's just this, the strategy that they don't want to infect people with disturbing things. They want people to access these essays as needed, but not unnecessarily disrupt other people. Don't you think that's what it's about? Well, I think that's true, and I think we even see that in the architecture of this this collection of essays itself. As you mentioned, there's this umbrella essay that 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 is the first thing you see, and the other things you can only find linked through the umbrella essay. When I looked at it this afternoon, there was no direct link to the sub-essays. So the umbrella essay is very short and sweet. I mean, it reads almost like the traditional story of polygamy that we've heard a million times before. And all, all the scary details are hidden off in the find out more at this link pages. So, um, 
so there, there's an interesting opportunity. There's an opportunity for people to self-select out, right? If they don't know anything and they find, oh, it's just more boring Mormon history, they can quit before they get to the stuff that would not be boring for them at all. Right. Well, yeah. I have I have something to say about that. I I agree with that in part, but I also think that it's part of something larger. Just as someone who's gone through this history, and it's taking me a year. I mean, it took us 52 weeks to get to through Nauvoo, right? And that we were being mm-hmm. super reductive, and they were, we were, you know, plowing through this as fast as we could. I think that, honestly, this is as general as most people are going to know and most people want to know. So I don't think that it's necessarily something that they expect people just to find if they're looking for crisis. I think that this is, in part, what a lot of what I would expect leaders to know about polygamy. And, I mean, I don't I don't expect the Quorum of the Twelve to be combing through church history books all day. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the many hundreds of thousands of pages of, of primary sources and scholarly works on this, um, nobody who's not an expert needs to read it all, right? But, but at the same time, it's interesting that all of the big controversial revelations are hidden in something you need to click twice to get to, and I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Lindsay, I guess you make a fair point that people are coming to bishops and stake presidents, I think every week now, want to ask some questions. And you're saying that that there's an ecclesiastical intent with these essays to become sort of the primer, the polygamy primer for the for the priesthood leaders on the ground who who have to deal with these issues. Yeah, I, I think it's that. And I also think, you know, to, for this essay to even come out, I've, I guess from my perspective, this is the culmination of, culmination maybe is the wrong word, of so many amazing, amazing historians that have, that have found out this work. And uh, I don't really see that acknowledged. I don't know how that could be acknowledged. But so for me, I, I don't know that it's nefarious. I mean, not that we're saying that it is nefarious, but I think that the church is doing the best they can with um, what they have to work with. And I think it's super interesting that they're building on the backs of historians that they once rejected. <laughs> so that there's this weird, you know, paradox in them publishing it to begin with. Totally. I mean, I we'll talk about when we talk about the post manifesto polygamy essay in a in a future episode. Someone's already made the comment that they're now releasing uh, information that pretty much apparently got Michael Quinn excommunicated, right? Yeah, like, and so I, I I don't know if I'm articulating this right, but I just think like this is the story they're telling someone else's story, even though it's their own story. I I don't know if I'm articulating that right. So yeah, this is not the research that a lot of them have done. Certainly, there are great church historians like, you know, Leonard Arrington and Andrew Jensen and many others that have done some of this work. But this is this is not just their story that they're telling, and I find that interesting. And so I think that's part of it. I don't think the church has complete ownership over the story anymore. Yeah. It, I think it's worth mentioning that in the plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo essay, at the very, very bottom, the very last sentence says, the church acknowledges the contribution of scholars to the historical content presented in this article. Their work is used with permission. Um, so I, I think that's a nod to what you're saying, right, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a recognition, but I think uh, this is not, I mean, the, the things that I've seen the church put out in the past, it's like, look how great we are. We're, 
you know, we're the church and God, the kingdom is coming together. And there's a certain amount of quiet shame, I think, that's coming out with these articles that I that I think is unnecessary. But I think that the shame for me that, that I'm perceiving in the church is that they weren't the ones leading the way on this. Right. John Hamer, you want to jump in at this point? Any Anything on what we've said so far or on the Umbrella essay? Yeah, well... So for me, since I'm, I, I guess, I, I, the question I guess I had was, if is this being used as a resource for, um, on the front end, you're saying like in the, on the front end battle lines or whatever for the bishops and branch presidents, so are they getting notifications that these resources exist in case somebody's coming to them with questions, or does it just appear and maybe they get it and maybe they don't, and maybe a bishop has heard that this exists and maybe he hasn't? You know, I mean, there's all. I think there's always that in the church. There's a lot of, you know, miscommunication or un- lack of communication or disorganization. I mean, I, I was so stunned when I met with my stake president a month or two ago to find out he had never heard of the Mormons and Gays website, um, and uh, and similarly, uh, I've heard other stake presidents with the same type of thing. Um, and so it's absolutely possible that there are stake presidents and bishops who still don't even know the essays exist. Having said that. There is a close friend of mine who was recently called in to a stake president um, where the stake president had, had never heard of uh, – actually told him that uh, he, he read a letter over the pulpit um, throughout all the stakes notifying the members that these essays existed. So I think the church is trying to let both stake presidents, bishops, and members know that there are essays – they're just making it difficult, I think, for people to find it. Have you guys heard something similar about a letter being written over the pulpits? There are definitely units where that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, yeah, I know for sure, sort of from, from some of my friends who are still church leaders, still, I say, who are church leaders, um, who that, that not all of them have received any kind of notice or anything. So, it's a I little mean, bit scattered, yeah. It's Yeah, they, 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 they probably, my guess is that they're sending it to the stakes where they know there's problems, mm. but the fact is that there are problems in every stake in the church, and, you know, they're, 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 they're not getting it everywhere. Yeah. Well, I have a question. I, I wonder, I mean, in the context you guys are talking about this, what is it about this that you think is going to help from a leadership perspective? Well, I think it would be helpful if when when someone walks into your office and says, I'm losing my faith because Joseph Smith married all these other men's wives, that you've ever heard of that before. I mean, I think that that's that's the level at which this would be helpful is um, my experience um, during my my period of crisis of faith within the church was that, that there was never a leader I could approach who'd ever even heard of anything I'd ever I was worrying about, let alone had a good answer. So whether whether there are good answers in here, at least the fact that church leaders could read this and say, "Yes, I've heard of um, this polyandry thing. You're not making it up or being tricked by anti Mormons." Uh, that that is by itself something that would be huge and positive. Yeah, with my with my friends' interaction with the stake president. Just, you know, recently he asked, you know, the stake president was giving him a hard time about some stuff. And basically he asked the stake president if he knew that Joseph Smith had used a peepstone and a hat. And the stake president had never heard of that before, ever. And this was last week, you know, 2014, <laughs> October. So, so I guess that's your answer about the essays, John. Because yeah. Yeah, the okay. peepstone no, essay has yeah. been out for quite a while. So, but what's yeah. utility? So, like, I, so I agree with you, actually, because um, this I had a similar experience myself. But I'm just trying to play the scenario out. So you go into your 
the church office, you know, your bishop's office, and you say, I'm really struggling with Fanny Alger, and your bishop goes, who's that? And so you say, let me pull it up on my phone, and Mm -hmm. you pull it up on LDS.org. I mean, what... What is the no, no, I agree. I mean, I, my, my hope would be that the, I mean, ideally, I imagine the people who prepared these would think that, well, the bishops and stake presidents are going to read this. And so you could go in and do the Fanny Alger thing, and maybe they wouldn't recognize the name, but you give them context, and they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 I remember about that. And then they might um, look it up and, and say to you, oh, this was a plural marriage. But as far as we're aware, <laughs> there's no directive instructing these leaders to read this, right? I don't think they want to do that, because it, it, think of all the leaders that could then be tripped into a crisis of faith. So I think I think they want it to be available if the leaders need it, but they don't want to do churchwide training on these problems, right? Yeah, but I, I don't think that's I, going to work. Anything that is a shock factor for the leaders, if they're finding out the first time in their office and someone Googles it on you know, their, their smartphone, that's, that's well, you know, the problem I, with this, this reasoning for me. I mean, I, I, this is absolutely a problem. I had an experience of talking with a, a stake president at one point, and he asked me... Um, what some of the things I found challenging in, in the faith were. And I told him some things, and he said, well, none of those are true, right? And, I mean, you know, my answer is, well, I, I think they're true, or I wouldn't <laughs> be worried about them. But, um, but he said, well, show me the sources that you've got. So I sent him, you know, primary sources and references to scholars and whatever. And um, he got back to me and said, I, I, I need to pray about this. We can't talk about this for a while. I'm sorry. So, I mean, that, that may not be a major crisis of faith, but that's clearly a crisis of faith. And this happens whether people get the information from LDS.org or the Journal of Discourses or, you know, whatever. Well, and, and actually, I, as we're looking into this one, I was realizing, by, you know, that the Wikipedia article on this topic is starting to get pretty reasonable. <laughs> In other words, yeah. no, so at a certain point, you know, all of these resources are so everywhere, ubiquitous, that it is, it's hard to not have any answer. So if your answer, apparently, famously before, uh, in the manual uh, on Brigham Young, it simply talks about Brigham Young and his wife. Mm-hmm. If that's more or less your answer, the, the argument from silence, you're going to, at a certain point, you have to have something, right? Well, and, and the answer in the Gospel Doctrine Manual is usually a specific instruction, do not discuss polygamy. So, you know, it, not just yeah. an argument of silence, but an argument to impose silence. Uh, okay. This is a, a topic that historically the church has simply preferred not to talk about at all. Well, my and guess so the is, fact that they oh, did is bad. Well, my guess is that this is baby steps towards this ultimately being introduced as a topic in Sunday school. What do you guys think? No. No, I I think I think we're talking too micro. I think for me this is this could just be me filtering through my own lens, but had this been available a couple years ago when I was going through this and I would have known that the church was validating it, I wouldn't have felt like the church was trying to hide something. So to me, it I don't think that they're necessarily caring if leaders get this or not. They're trying to say, "Look, we're not hiding anything. It's been here all along." So plausible deniability. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a move towards openness. I definitely see these essays as a positive step. But yeah, I mean, I, it could be that's that's a good point. To, like answering this charge, which I've heard a lot of times, people think, "Oh, I what I was lied to, or I, you know, no one told me about this thing. Therefore, it, because I hadn't been told about it, I was being deceived." And so, by ha- by having this, I don't know if you, I'm not saying, in other words, framing it more positively than positive. Uh, uh, plausible deniability. In other words, that they actually 
it, it does exist out here so that people can point to it and say, right. no, it was there. Yeah, hey, John, I, I want to take... Blaming, okay, sorry. But, sorry, there's an element of victim blaming. I remember, you know, being... my I was like 20, 25 when I found out Joseph Smith had other wives. And it was really difficult for me. And I've talked to other, you know... Mormon scholars, and they're like, really? You never knew that? And I felt such shame for that, as if like there was something deficient in me because I didn't know that. And so I see this as potentially having that effect, saying, we haven't been hiding anything. How come you haven't been reading you know, th- your history? How come you haven't been looking on the site? No, so I, I mean, I want to take John's, um, they didn't tell me, so they, I was lied to point. I, I was talking last night with a friend of mine who, um, who is saying that she, you know, in her 45 years as a Mormon, she's read hundreds of books on church history published by the church and church authors and Deseret book. So, the idea that, that, that she's not looking is, is false. But okay. there was all this information that was simply simply and entirely absent and sometimes flatly contradicted. So the fact of the matter is she was lied to, partly by omission, partly by commission. And this does help correct that. Yeah. And, you know, the certainly the findings from our Why, Why Mormons Question study of a couple of years back of 3,000, you know, non, non-believing Mormons was that the feeling of being betrayed or lied to was much more significant than any individual doctrine or historical nugget. So that would, Lindsay, I think, I think that would totally make sense if, if that was really a primary driver of what's going on. And I just want to point out because I, I too have felt this, so I'm not trying to diminish or dismiss anyone's sort of feelings of betrayal because believe me, if you listen to my podcast, I cry about this all the time, literally. But, uh, I do think that there is not something, it's not out of like this traditional dark, evil dishonesty that the church hasn't been talking about this. If you know anything about the history of polygamy, there is such institutional fear and shame that is, you know, kind of developed into cultural fear and shame and almost biological fear and shame over this topic that the church needed to be secretive about this for so long, and then they had to outright deny it for so long. And I feel like a culture um, has developed around that, and so we're dealing with the remnants. So even though we feel betrayed, and a lot of us didn't know this stuff, it wasn't necessarily someone saying, "This is too scary. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you." Now we do know instances of like you know Mike Quinn and Packer, where the famous you know some things that aren't true aren't useful. However, I do think that. You know, the, even the leadership is dealing with those remnants of we do not put this stuff out there for the public. Right. Does that make sense? Totally. No, absolutely. I mean, there are all kinds of ways this comes up. I mean, one of the reasons that the church has um, has hidden the, the idea that Brigham Young taught the Adam-God doctrine for so long is that they're worried that acknowledging that Brigham's taught that will cause people to become polygamists. Uh, this, is, this is a very live and pressing concern for the church. And so then, you know, it takes the other live and perhaps even more pressing concern of thousands of people leaving because of finding out this information to counterbalance that, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, let me let me jump to kind of my first question. Now, just to give listeners uh, an understanding, we're not going to be covering all the es- essays in this uh, episode. We're only going to be covering, you know, now that we've talked about uh, an overarching frame, we're only going to be talking about the uh, Nauvoo and, and um, the Kirtland and Nauvoo essay, which is the first one. Um, now, but with that, I want to start with an overall question that I'll throw to John Hamer first. 
to what extent do we give you know kudos to the church for for this initiative or not what's your take john and then we'll do lindsay then jason um well i think that like i like i say in terms of this being over and above this like uh um, where they're at with the manual where uh they're just simply omitting this entire vast thing i think that that's a little crazy the old policy so having gotten to a point where i think lindsay was making this point that that the, the new mormon history has been happening now it's not new anymore it's been happening since whatever the 40s and 50s and so all of this information has been around and it's there it has to be dealt with but now it's been able to come to a point where um they're able to write essays that they're able to continue you know to use the um i'll say they're able to use the scholarships that's there the historical um information that is there but it's able to be maneuvered or massaged into a way where they can have still open the best possible reading imaginable within that you know within that framework of what the evidence is <laughs> and so it's so in some ways i think it's it's there's some kudos to to it but i think that uh, from for myself um we you're, we're still having the overarching problem of of um writing writing the essays with the goal of uh doing everything possible to um keep joseph smith blameless and and as perfect as possible which i think ends up by by ha by doing that i think it ends up um it ends up having this leader focus or this focus or thinking that leaders are infallible focus, which is, is which I'm, and take, I, that's not part of my belief system. So, but that's why I'm not in that church. So, yeah. so. And some say that's one of the biggest problems with contemporary Mormonism is just leader worship. And, and that if we want to progress, that's one of the first things we have to get rid of. And it's something that the church explicitly in some forums, even through its publishing of the Givens's Crucible of Doubt book, they're trying, I think, to move away from in a gentle way, but but for you, John Hamer, the essays still perpetuate that a bit, right? So the the difference between where where this would be at and you know where the community of Christ is at in it in its um, in its uh, looking at back at this time period in history is on the one hand, community of Christ has pulled back from saying whether or not you know the, the, whatever happened in the history that's not relevant to where we are today, and so not not being so fully invested in the history on that part but then in by but looking at it and saying letting the chips fall where they lie so the historian of the community of christ church the world is our our version of leonard errington or or elder snow uh has said that you know what joseph's doing here in in um in nauvoo with uh engaging in in these plural marriages is a is a um abuse of his priesthood authority so anyway so that's a, not the most positive spin as imaginable in other words it's one where we're looking at it and saying if that kind of thing is happening you know this is this is what our or rather given that it is happening this is our conclusion from it right all right Lindsay, your reactions overall to the essays kudos no kudos or medium kudos oh gosh um well that brings up an interesting point because we're talking about you said the biggest some say the biggest problem with the church is leader worship and i would actually say in my mind the biggest problem with the church is sort of none of us know how to think anymore i mean we've relied on prophets and and people to tell us what to think for so long that we just don't know how to think as a people and so everything is really binary and i think that's the biggest problem with the church i agree with john completely that this this is a very um favorable view of joseph smith 
it's uh, of course it's a it's an essay and i and i do think it made enormous progress in some areas i was shocked to see them talk about helen marr i was delighted to see that they acknowledged that uh joseph had sexual relations with some women because one of my biggest uh, drums that I will beat that makes me super angry is when people try to deny that Joseph had sex with some of these women. These women in Victorian America went on the stand and talked about their sex life. Like, I don't think we can understand quite what a risky thing that was. And to erase their narratives because we want to privilege the reputation of one man is a huge problem for me. So I was really, I was really happy to see that. However, I would be shocked if I found out a woman wrote this essay, I think it's clear that this came through um, the male lens of history. There, uh, I many of my most beloved heroes of history are males. Um, I don't want to criticize uh, men historians at all, but for women, this is such a deeply personal thing. Polygamy is often written through the lens of a man. And this essay is clearly, clearly through that lens. And so I find that to be a problem. And of course, it privileges Joseph's reputation over all else. And I have a problem with that. Right. All right, Jason. Yeah, I mean, so I want to, on the kudos or no kudos, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this, I was grading this afternoon, grading undergraduate papers, so I'm going to give <laughs> grades here. And I'm going to give grades two different ways. So I'm going to do, and I do this sometimes with students as well, I'm going to give a progress grade first. So if we take this essay and compare it to the contents of LDS.org on the same material a week ago, this is an A triple plus. <laughs> nice. The vast improvement in terms of what's actually available to church members through uh, the official church, it, it really deserves a lot of credit. Now, if I take away the progress frame and say, all right, does this meet expectations? This is about a D. The problem here Whoa. is that... Yeah, it's, 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 it's close to passing, arguably passing, but it's, it's not... If, if you're looking for a straightforward historical treatment that tries to understand as best we can from the records we have what people who were doing these things thought at the time, this is very far from that. There's a great deal of anachronism, a great deal of projecting present-day agendas back onto the past, a great deal of attention to solving current political problems. I mean, much of this essay reads like a way of trying to save um, the church's current politics about marriage equality from the fact that um, the church has had wildly dissimilar marriage practices over time, that those marriage practices have evolved in ways that don't follow the clear rational revelation pattern that the church claims now as the basis for its politics. And this is a heavy-handed theme throughout. I mean, this is the first sentence of the essay isn't even about polygamy or history. It's about marriage equality. And, and then this, this is the driving frame in my reading for the entire essay. And, and using that as a way of talking about Joseph Smith and Emma and these other women is, is a very strange and distorting frame, in my opinion. And that, that, that causes a lot of other problems, but that's an overriding choice by the writers that, that I think really hampers the ability of this text to, to do what it should be doing. You're talking about the opening sentence which says, Latter-day Saints believe that the marriage of one man and one woman is the Lord's standing law of marriage. 
Yeah, if you talked, if you read that sentence to Joseph Smith in the Nauvoo period, he would <laughs> he would call you a heretic. I mean, th- this is this is absolutely not the case in the view of Joseph Smith, and and much less Brigham Young and others. Brigham Young, who we'll talk later on, I guess, um, would go on to say that you know polygamy is always and everywhere preferred, right? But but so that the the viewpoint that's being reflected here is is not one of building an empathetic understanding of a different time to see the value system that made the decisions of that time make sense, and also to understand the pain and suffering that it produced. Instead, this is a an agenda of saying, we have a series of facts that we want to deal with about the past, but we really want to solve them for problems today. And and that's such an unfortunate way to set up history that, 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 you know, even before we get into the details, the framework is really counterproductive and frustrating. Lindsay, did you want to say something to that? Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I, I like I agree completely with what you're saying, because they use modern language. And one thing that really struck me is, I feel like this essay says, or like it reveals a lot about not just the church's view of sexuality, but like this whole Western view of sexuality, right? Like this essay is written for American Mormons. This, <laughs> this is not written for anyone else in the world. Uh, it, there's just such this framing, this, this really like frontier Westernized patriarchal f- framing that I don't think would translate into a lot of other cultures. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. Okay, so a, a deep plus for for Jason. <laughs> well, I mean, on one grading system, I do want right. to recognize yeah. the progress. Right? This yeah. is this is this is a student who's made great progress, and if they continue <laughs> along the same trajectory, there is hope. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, okay, so um, yeah, so and that was one of the questions I had. I mean, the Lord's standard, like. And this is just repeating what you just said, but I just, if you read the comments made in the 19th century about how polygamy was required for exaltation by multiple prophets, um, even if you read Doctrine and Covenants 32, which is still standing, right? Yes. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to reconcile that information with that first sentence, right? For me. A little bit. I agree completely. I yeah. agree completely. I mean, the, the the essays finesse Doctrine and Covenants 32 and say that they simultaneously reveal plural marriage and eternal marriage. But if you read the text, it's not so much simultaneous as 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 um, synonymous. It's synonymous. Yeah. Synonymous, yeah. Synonymous, yeah. yeah. I mean, so 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 that the. the, the, the there isn't something where the Lord says in other news about marriage. <laughs> I mean, the the phrase, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage is used as a descriptor, and there's no um, differentiation. So, so the idea that this is um, something that isn't an eternal and lasting and higher law is something that I think fits our worldview, but would not have fit the worldview of the people at the time. It's an anachronism, right? And that's okay. I mean, it's fine that we think something different than they thought. That's good in a lot of ways. But um, if we want to understand how people did what they did at the time, understanding what they were thinking is always a first step. Yeah, right. John? And, and the, the essay here is um, is completely reframing that. So the Lord commanded the adoption and later the cessation of plural marriage, you know, in the in by by revelation, right? Is the way that's framed here, as opposed to the Lord gave a new and everlasting covenant 
which was suspended. So <laughs> which was words, suspended in a press release as well, by the way. Yeah, right. So that, in other words, that's a very different. That's a very different from the time. You know how it had been framed yes. and how it's framed here in this essay, which was adopted and then it was ceased. And it was the same. Those are exactly the same. You know. I want to. I want to sort of emphasize that this idea that the that that plural marriage was over and was an anomaly and was never to return is not an idea I ever heard as a child in the church. The 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 Mormonism I was raised in was a Mormonism where this was held in suspension until the world was ready for it, along with other things like the United Order. And so, I had um, a great many nightmares and stress moments, worrying that at some point I would be asked to live the principle um, when it was restored. Right, right. You and me both, pal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's confusing, and, it, and it, it's, it's, it's sort of another example of kind of the graveyard of these really epic revelations that Joseph Smith received, whether it's gathering to Zion or dynastic ceilings or, you know, eternal, you know, plural marriage that now are, you know, even the fact that we're Latter-day Saints anticipating an imminent return of Christ, there's kind of a boneyard for epic, you know, Joseph Smith revelations. And it's clear that this is now kind of being, being heaped in the boneyard. John Hamer, did you have a final thought on this before we move on? No, oh, just like you're saying. So it, it, that essay leads to it. So the the manifesto which led to the end of plural marriage. So it is not. <laughs> it, so you can know it's not um, suspended. So you guys are are, are clean, clear. <laughs> you know, well, sure, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I, I wish someone had. I wish someone had let us know that in somewhere in the um, hundred and twenty years between the manifesto and today. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I I don't I don't know that we're going to get that either. I mean, I feel like the church left it open in some ways that kind of are disconcerting to it, especially a lot of Mormon women. But I, Julie Smith talks about this in her blog on Times and Seasons. She talked about, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but she pointed out the really interesting thing about how Revelation was talked about. Did you guys catch that? No, how tell the, us. Yeah, I mean, they call this like this inspired, they call the manifesto sort of inspired but they break it down as if it's not something, you know, like Monson doesn't go to God and God tells him something and then he changes it. It's like this process. It's this changing process and it's, it's ongoing and the doors are always open, which actually fits into Mormon canon quite well. However, that's not how Joseph saw things, in my opinion. That's not how many church members still right. continue to see things. So, I think that's a really interesting development in this essay is the way that we talk about Revelation. When in fact the treatment of Joseph in this particular regard is is I'm going to say outright schizophrenic. I mean in the in the pop culture sense, right? I, I, there, there's there's two completely contradictory visions that 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 we equivocate from one to the other over and over again. So there's this idea of revelation as a um, as a human and gradual process in which a lot of errors are made. And then there's the idea of revelation as a process in which angels with flaming swords show up and say words to you that are seared into your mind and you can recite them 20 years later and get them exactly right. Yeah. And both of them are going on. Yeah, and, the, and, and this leads to kind of the next question that I had. There was a phrase in the essay that said, quote, you know, the Lord did not give exact instruction on how to obey the commandment. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, John Hamer, you could probably highlight this. How many incredibly detailed and and mundane and sort of tedious 
descriptions are offered in the Doctrine and Covenants where you're just like wondering why this is even included in Scripture because it's so detailed. Like the Word of Wisdom is like saying it's listing, you know, vegetables and animals and meat <laughs> and, you know, coffee and, tea, you know, I, I mean, more hot drinks and b beverages. I mean, it's going into all this detail, yet like one of the most important defining commandments, you know, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, well, the Lord didn't give a lot of instruction on how to do it. And I'm like, well, well what, <laughs> where was the Lord in this? John Hamer? What, well, I, except for when, that, when I read that and what, what kind of stood out to me in my head was, well, wait a second, DNC 132, LDS DNC 132 does have a, uh, a lot of kind of crazy detailed instructions that are <laughs> that are kind of embarrassing right and so what? if a man espouses a virgin and, and then if a man he espouses 10 virgins and and then he asks his first he asks his wife his first wife and if she give her consent and if she give her not her consent he's re he's relieved from the from the law of sarah that kind of thing and so and so i think that in the course of all that there is a little bit of a detailed i don't know yeah you're right that's a really good and, point and a wonderful thing about that is that literally every instruction that exists in that section, Joseph Smith violated. That's right. Literally every one. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although the essay does try to try to weave him out of that again at the end of this. So right. It, right. There is a place yeah. where um, it's Emma's fault. A, Emma's fault. Well, yeah. That, well, that's essentially yeah. So in other words, there, this essay again because people have made that charge that Jay just made, and so obviously, and so therefore the essay kind of says. Well, presumably, let's see, um, given that she, Emma, had screwed up, like you say, the husband would be exempt from the law of Sarah. Presumably, the requirement that the husband gain the consent of the first wife before m marrying additional women. Um, sorry, I'm trying to read this in the essay. So, Joseph w was placed in an agonizing dilemma. He was forced to between, be choose between the will of God and the will of his beloved Emma. He may have thought that Emma's rejection of plural marriage exempted him from the law of Sarah. So, anyway, so in other words, he, mm -hmm. that's, it's explaining to kind of needle through the haystack here of how, how we can say, well, no, he was not violating one DNC. But, the, but that it really goes beyond the historical record. I mean, as far as we know, Emma never even heard about this directly from Joseph until after he'd married some women, which blatantly violates the uh, law of Sarah. That's a good not point. To mention, not to mention, um, you know, one of, the, one of the excuses people have always made for polygamy is that it's a great way to take care of all the widows. And I want to point out that DNC 132 says that it's for women who've never been married. Yeah, virgins, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Women yeah. that don't belong to really, a man. Can I really point out something that Please. really, really bothered me, actually? When they talk about Joseph and Emma in this context, they say, yeah, like it was really hard. She went back and forth on this. But we really, I think their wording is we don't know... Like, there's nothing known about uh, how they really felt about it or something. I'll find the exact wording. How she really felt about it. How yes. she really felt about it. And that makes me so mad. I'm like, there's not nothing. I mean, we don't have a lot of firsthand sources yes. there yeah. that I'm aware here, of. Here, here it is. She, she, she left no firsthand accounts, making it impossible to reconstruct her thoughts. <laughs> well, in <laughs> fact, she did leave firsthand accounts in which she, she um, lied a lot. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that was someone else. That was someone else who interviewed her, right? No, I understand, right. but I mean, so an interview so that, is pretty firsthand. Um, well, you know, her, in her own words, we know what she thought, and she she lied, and that's okay. But you know, this is yeah, okay. But if you're, but that's already a secondhand account, and so that's what, uh, yeah, that's that's what they're trying to say. In other words, they've they've set up this incredible standard here, there for for Emma. We're, it's impossible for us to know her thoughts because there's no firsthand accounts because, because we, we don't, don't have any autographs of Emma. 
we also have <laughs> interviews from. I mean, of yeah. uh, uh, from William McClellan, who said that he interviewed Emma, and she yes. admitted she didn't lie about it, or she did admit to it, and and was very much opposed to it. So absolutely. Right, right. And we have William Law's recollection of the same. So right. Yes. So we have a lot of secondhand accounts of what Emma is saying, and so we can. Yeah reconstruct her thoughts right right but her thoughts come from the nauvoo period and as this essay makes clear i mean polygamy started possibly in kirtland we'll have to talk about that okay yeah. a little bit in missouri and then um yeah. so so who wants to jump in and talk about the quote 1831 revelation uh, it could be it could, because there's a lot of yeah. the, isn't there a I lot can, of questions or con controversy about that well yes yeah, and I think it's complicated here in this essay. This is one of the, the parts of the essay that is especially complex because all the way through it, they just talk about uh, the revelation. So the revelation on plural marriage was not written down until 1843, but its early verses suggest that it part emerged from Joseph Smith's study of the Old Testament in 1831. So in other words, the, I, there's, a, there's an idea here that DNC um, you know, 132 although it's quite late and definitely um, composed after Joseph has been practicing plural marriages for a whole long time. And certainly, in, um, if, if we're counting the early stuff as being plural marriages, which they are in this essay, so uh, it's also definitely penned after it's gotten going big time in Nauvoo too. So what the, the attempt here is to go back and find a... Um, the, an earlier precedent revelation, and there is some precedent for it, but it's not spelled out what that is in this essay. Well, and, and I want to point something out. In the essay, they talk about how, you know, we, we do have some sources that Joseph married these women, but many of these accounts are from years later and so could be unreliable, right? There's that line, which is funny to me because this 1831 revelation that they're talking about, there's, there's an aspect of it that has to do with W.W. W. Phelps. And he writes it down years later, and he asserts that Joseph um, was thinking about polygamy in 1831 because he asked people to marry Lamanite women as wives. And so, mm -hmm. I love this idea that, like, it's, it's actually, I hate this idea, that we can, uh, if women are saying it, you know, on the Sam Ron yeah. and Temple Lot cases, we don't know how reliable that is. But if some dude writes down something he remembers Joseph said years later, we're good to go. Yeah, so no, we just got through talking about Emma. We can't understand what Emma thought because of these second and third hand sources. And yet we're comfortable citing an 1831 revelation that's like how many years after the fact, right? I mean, it's, it's the not consistent. The right? recollection it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not even first hand. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, not, it's, not even, it's not even not just first hand, but it's also heavily inferred. I mean, the first hand recollection is, is this statement about marrying Lamanite wives during a mission, which would have been plural marriage. And then from that, they're extrapolating that while he was reading the Bible and translating it, he got a chunk of what would later become DNC 132, which no one in the sources actually says. So, so they're going from something that is in the sources, and though, even though it's dubious and, and has all kinds of retrospect, to something that is well beyond what the sources allow. Right. I mean, I mean, W. W. Phelps would have been remembering it from having lived through Nauvoo polygamy anyway. Yes, exactly. And Utah polygamy. So that he's already got that frame right. anyway. The the one thing that they do have that is going for this thing though that makes that makes you don't want to just throw away what W. W. Phelps is remembering is that we also have an antagonistic source that is closer to being contemporary, which is that Ezra Booth who is a early uh, Mormon who leaves uh, the church after one of these trips 
uh, West, and he ends up writing a whole bunch of scathing letters to Eber D. Howe, and it's published in Mormonism Unveiled, so the first major anti-Mormon book. And so Ezra Booth also remembered that Joseph Smith is is has this idea of polygamy in terms of, but it's not the kind of later Nauvoo polygamy, it's this idea of kind of a concubinage, where there are going to be, um, uh, you're going to marry Native Americans, and that is how... Um, but through intermarriage, that is how Native American progeny will become white and delightsome. Mm-hmm. And so I think that part of the reason why that um, that although this is kind of cited in it, it's incredibly important to get an 1831 revelation here so that Joseph Smith's actions between 1831 and 1843 aren't totally in violation of this principle that revelation is causing this. On the other hand, they don't want to cite what this revelation is because the framework for this 1831 rate Revelation is so racist. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and totally. You want to yeah. colonize people through sex. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, not only that, but I mean, the concubinage thing was also important. The, the, the framework that people would later call spiritual wifery seems to have been a part of this. I mean, there, there's some, you know, this is, this is a common f- thing that we see in new religious movements. So you can point to a ton of other examples that develop in similar ways, where you start with a system where the leader and his associates get to pick pretty much anyone and that person will be their wife. And then it develops into complex forms of marriage with actual institutions and rules. But there seems to be something similar here as well, where the early system didn't necessarily have you know, ceremonies certainly didn't have this idea of sealing that comes to be attached with it later. And the sealing authority doesn't even show up apparently until what, thirty six? So this is this is an interesting That's... and complicated part of the okay, story. Okay, wait, wait, this before is, wait, yeah. before we get there, just real quick. It's worth noting, and I don't know that this was mentioned anywhere in the essays, that the eighteen thirty five version of our scriptures explicitly forbade plural marriage. True or not true? Correct. Yes. And was that mentioned anywhere in these essays? They did talk about the Book of Mormon condemning it, but did they talk about the Doctrine and Covenants or the you know Doctrine and Covenants explicitly forbidding it? I mean, they kind of dance around it. They talk about you know the the way that marriage rumors, yeah, yeah, um, and how the church sort of viewed marriage. But no, they don't talk about and. But to be fair, I mean that's a really complicated story to tell. Maybe not, but I for me it feels like there's a timeline involved, and you know. The articles of marriage are left in the scriptures for a long, long time, and then they're taken out. And I feel like that's something that needs probably more context than this essay could provide. Sure. But, I mean, it's just worth noting that it was explicitly against the laws of the church to engage in plural marriage, according to the 1835 version of the Doctrine and Covenants. And according to a lot of the things that Joseph was saying. I mean, in, in many ways, John Hamer and I have actually talked about this on a podcast at FMH, but... Emma Smith used the Relief Society as a platform to, you know, root out this evil. Right. That's right. No, absolutely. Cheryl Bruno has some really interesting work that, that she's been doing on exactly this, on, on the, the different moments and conflicts in the, the transcript of the Relief Society that, that are inexplicable if you don't correlate them with the um, timeline of polygamy. Yeah. Okay, let's jump to 1836 and the sealing authority. Jason, let me you, let me, oh, let me give you your let me give you your quote that you're you were wanting, John, from the DNC because this is actually still in Community of Christ DNC. Right. So, <laughs> so this did, he had to this, rub that in. in. Didn't he? he had to rub that in. Well, except for we except for we don't we don't 
we don't use it. It's it's been superseded, but it's still in there. Okay, so in as much as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, one husband, except in the case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again. And so the, the you know that part of it there though is kind of interesting and telling because that's 1835, and so they're they're saying already that the Church of Christ, which is what the church was called or whatever at the time, has been re, has been um, uh, reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy. So it, it's definitely you know in the air and buzzing around if they feel that they have to have the need of actually publishing a, a condemnation of it. So, yeah. and I say that we've changed it in Community of Christ, even though this is in our DNC, because obviously we have we have marriage equality now, so it doesn't have to be one man should have one wife. You can have one man can have one husband. Now. Yeah. And, you know, we could always, we're not going to go there, but Grant Palmer talks a lot about some of the sexual, you know, allegations made against Joseph Smith that happened in the early 1830s that have to yeah. be a part of some of this rumbling. Okay. Uh, and that was Section 101, right, John Hamer? It's not in ours, but anyway, the, all oh, the numbers okay. have changed. Okay, so. that's fine. Okay, <laughs> so. Jason, let's, let's go to authority, 1836. So, I mean, there's two things that we need to talk about in parallel, right? Authority and the possible first wife, Fanny Alger. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, we have the... the um, because these the, the the timing on these is interesting and controversial, and the um the essay just completely suppresses that. So so the essay says that um, Joseph Smith acted on the angel's first command by marrying a plural wife, Fanny Alger, in Kirtland, Ohio, in the mid eighteen thirties. So the mid eighteen thirties is nice, but then and on April third, eighteen thirty six. Um, Elijah appeared to Joseph and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple and restored the priesthood keys necessary to perform ordinances for the living and the dead, including sealing families together. Now, this is this is um, a power that Joseph didn't understand is actually including sealing families until several years later. That's not, I mean, this is not something he discusses or puts into action until the 1840s. So, so there's some period of time where he apparently owns the keys but doesn't know what they unlock. Um, but the interesting point here is um, with contemporary or Mormon understanding of polygamy, polygamy has to be a ceiling for eternal marriage. And so, when we think about Fanny Alger as, as a possible wife of Joseph Smith, it becomes important to people to decide whether that relationship started before or after April 1836. If it started before, then Joseph didn't have the sealing keys. And if it started after, then he did, and it could have been a legitimate plural marriage. Um, and so, so this, is, this is a question that becomes interesting and complicated because the timing is very close one way or the other. Well, Fanny leaves, and I think it's September 1836 is when she sort of flees over this controversy. And yes. there's, there are, you know, some that say, I think it's Martin Harris, as early as around 1833, starts, you know, accusing Joseph of these improper proposals. This yeah. woman. And it was kind of this not secret secret in the community. Right. So this is this is the first case that we have a really good record of. I mean, there are a few earlier ones that you can poke at, and they're they're tantalizing bit, bits and pieces of, of evidence, even going back into um, Palmyra days of, of other possible relationships. But this is the first one where we have, you know, frankly, an eyewitness um, in Oliver Cowdery. And it's worth mentioning that Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated for accusing Joseph of adultery, right? 
Right. He said that he'd had an affair with Fanny Alger, which Joseph flatly denied, and that was it. Yeah. And so the church's argument would be, number one, the understanding of sealing and plural marriage was evolving, and so it didn't reach maturity until the 1840s, and that Joseph just felt like he had to keep it secret, and so he couldn't share it with Oliver, right? And then we also have some very, very late testimony, although, you know, Lindsay, you'll be happy to know that it's from a man, so we can take it seriously, that, that um, <laughs> discusses this as having been a full-blown wedding and gotten the permission of the parents and so forth. But that comes very late in the process when there's, there's an interest in depicting Joseph Smith as having been thoroughly polygamous very early. And so, you know, because the controversy with uh, Community of Christ was, or well, the RLDS church at that time was right. live. And so, so there were political reasons why Utah Mormons would want to remember things in that way. Well, and and so, yeah. Like from Fanny's perspective, Don Bradley's done some great work and yeah. the persistence of polygamy. You can read his great essay on this. Uh, th you know, there's rumors that Fanny was possibly pregnant. I think Chauncey Webb talks about it. Had Fanny have been pregnant, uh, it makes sense that maybe Joseph would have gone through some sort of ceremony to make this better. That's one, that's one, uh, other argument for it, but I also think this is another instance where we privilege the reputation of Joseph. Like we're trying, we're yeah. struggling all of these ways, and and we say, you know, this account of Emma supposedly finding them and you know celestializing the best word ever <laughs> in the barn. Um, I just feel like again we are fighting. Like, w would it be so bad to say, yeah, you know, Joseph Smith messed up. The community of Christ has done it. They did it. And they, made, they went through it. But we have to have him be this upstanding Victorian, perf perfectly like uh, righteous man. It, we're, we're injecting our sexual narratives, like these Western sexual narratives. It's really weird. Even though he was really open about saying that he was deeply flawed, right? Well, and not only that, but I mean, there's there's more to it. I mean, this is worse than Victorian. We're projecting 21st century and 20, late 20th century LDS standards backwards. You know, for a contemporary Mormon, having an affair is one of the worst things ever, and you're going to get excommunicated and be delivered over to the powers of Satan and things. For Mormons at this point in time in Kirtland, having an affair was treated much less heavily this you know so this is this is we're we're using a moral standard and thinking about this that that would not have been the moral standard of the people at the time yeah there are cases of joseph being like oh you got this woman pregnant okay you know or oh, or people oh, having better and you can come back yeah or people having an affair and being excommunicated for 3 weeks and then being restored to the the quorum of the 12 but I mean, nowadays, we love to communicate people for sex stuff all the time. We like our sex stuff in the church. Exactly. And so it's incredibly important for 21st century reasons that Joseph not have had an affair. When, frankly, having an affair is a completely reasonable interpretation of the evidence we have here. And Mar Martin certainly didn't care, apparently, right? I mean, or at least he allowed, allowed uh, you know, he still believed in Joseph even after that. We you think mean that he probably Oliver Cowdery, or because Oliver Cowdery is the one who is most entangled with with the Fanny Alger um, no. relationship. I'm, yeah, I'm just saying that we had mentioned that that Martin oh, Harris yes. right. had 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 been saying that some of this might have been going on in the early 1830s, and oh, Mar yeah. Martin several stuck with him. Several people were talking about, it, but this is this is probably the most unkind thing I'm going to say to listeners out there. If you find yourself trying to struggle to prove that Joseph didn't have sex with these women, first of all, that's 
odd they were his wife's, right? So what's the problem? And second, like, that says way more about our messed up sexual, like, narratives than I think it does about Joseph's. And maybe that's really unfair, but I feel, you know, I see this, I see Mormon scholars, and they're usually men, arguing over Joseph's sex life, like, constantly. And to oh me, gosh, that's, yeah. that's less interesting than the actual marriage part, you know? Well, we, we get this in... Listen to me. We get this in the in the most extreme and bizarre way later in this essay too. So that's okay. something to look forward to. Okay, so it, so I'll jump to the part where it mentions uh, that Joseph briefly mentions sealing to Parley. Is there anything interesting about that that's worth noting? Well, again, because that's an exa- that, that by mentioning that they're trying to show that that idea that sealing exists before the. Um, the the eighteen forty three writing down of DNC one thirty two right, and so the um, but but and they again retrojecting here these idea that the sealing keys are what's happening in this Elijah vision in the Kirtland Temple, but actually what's happening is that's not thought of at the time of that vision. That vision doesn't include anything like that. It's later as as those ideas of sealing and keys are 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 evolving. It's re remembered back onto that vision. Oh okay. And it's really interesting, like, when we talk about the law of adoption, because Cheryl Bruner, you're talking about that, her and Brian Hills had this debate about the law of adoption, and I believe the Council of 50 Minutes is sort of addressing, like, if Joseph instituted the law of adoption or if Brigham did, but it's interesting because if, if we're talking about these ceilings and it's meant to connect people then why would Joseph had to have to be sealed to Helen Marr and not Heber C. Kimball? You know, exactly. that doesn't make any sense to me. No, right. I mean, people people are not pawns for the purpose of creating relationships between other people. That's that's gross. That's the sort of thing that happens under feudalism and enslaved societies. That's that's not the sort of thing that, that we would imagine happening in a Zion society. Women are not um, tokens of exchange for creating relationships among men. And that's the apologetic here. And my, my, my good friend Jay Stapley has been writing about this for lo these many years. And I think it's a true interpretation, but morally it's gross. <laughs> that's so 21st century yeah. of you, Jay. I know. No, that's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it's maybe 21st century gross, but it actually might be a reasonable interpretation here. We could, yes. given, given the problematic situation with the whole temple theology of the, you know, so in other words, why can't Heber just be uh, um, sealed to Joseph and why does it have to be Helen? It, it's, Heber is going to have to have his own world. He's in, he's a person who's in a position to be exalted since he's a man, whereas the women are only in a position to be connected to someone who's fully exalted, which is to say you're a man. You're getting into something dangerous there, John Hamer. You're talking about the Adam-God theory, which the church doesn't want to connect, which is this idea that, that Adam was God and that Eve was the, the mother of our world. And, and actually, this theology makes a lot of sense compared to what we're talking about. You know, Brigham believed that Eve was, was the plural wife for our world, and every plural wife you had would be like the heavenly mother and the Eve of that world. That, this, this is the Adam-God theory that we want to be away from, but we can't because it's implicit in, in women as chattel, women as property. We see women as pawns throughout, throughout history, and it, of course, it you know, evolves, and I... I I still see remnants of it today in these sealing practices where uh, men, this it's su- super unequal that men can still be married to more than one woman. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Well, next... there, there's there's another piece to that really quickly too, though, which makes this even more complicated. Which is we have these these theological scraps of the idea that there's not only um, these relationships that are family, but also relationships of dependence within dispensations. So that Joseph stands at the head of every family in our dispensation. Right. This is a this is another 19th century idea that we see clearest in the Utah period, but but seems to trace back to Joseph. So the idea that that ceilings could only happen among people who couldn't be exalted misses something because everyone has to depend on joseph to get the authority to be exalted somehow yeah yeah <clears throat> interesting okay someone mentioned an interesting numerical point that the, that the essay mentions 29 men and 50 women but yeah. for 29 men to have two wives minimum each that requires at least 58 women anyone have a thought on that I actually have the numbers. It, it might take me a while to pull it up on my notes because my notes are like 400 pages long. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I, like this is a, Carmen Hardy and, and Jesse Embry and a f- lots of other historians have done a lot of research on these numbers. These numbers become important. So if you want, I can... Uh, no, it's okay, but you notice that discrepancy, right? Oh, for sure. And... Uh, yeah. This is another tactic that the church that I'm surprised that we're still that we're still going with, where we really try to minimize the percentage of of people practicing mm-hmm. polygamy. I'm not sure why we do that. Yeah, what does it do? Well, in the Utah essay, they they back away from that, but this is yet another case of them having multiple messages uh, in tension with each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, they're, and, they're, and they're kind of crazy because they, like you say again, here we have these really, ex, you know, ex specific specific numbers. You know, there's 29, 50, and then later at least there's at least 196 and 521. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, throughout this whole thing, you know, we can't have any kind of number of how many wives Joseph Smith might have had. So, in other words, it's 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 50 women in addition to Joseph and his wives. Right. You know? and so and so the question throughout all of this, and it says very clearly, we can't know about how many Joseph had because the re- records are scarce. So Although we have an enormous amount of research, right? We may not know the number, but we have a nice lower bound. <laughs> you could say at least 33 or something like at that. At least 33 would be acceptable. Everyone agrees yeah. on about 33. So right. I believe it's Jesse Embry who has done, done a lot of this research, and I, I've got to find it in my notes, but they get pretty specific. I mean, they have combed through census records and diaries and everything, and and there are charts and graphs. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is like a science to some of these people, and so it's not like you know it, this number that we don't know a lot about. There's there's right. a lot of there's actually a lot of evidence for this kind of thing. Well, I mean, it, there's a range that that historians right. have where I mean, it's between about thirty three and forty eight, and exactly where you fall in that range depends on some controversial interpretive decisions but that's not a huge range and it's a lot more specific than approximately 50 (laughs) right 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 okay so it talks a bit about kind of carefully worded denials it talks about spiritual wifery and um it makes this statement that the statements emphasize that the church practiced no marital law other than monogamy while implicitly leaving open the possibility that individuals under direction of God's living prophet, might do so. So that's, what What about that stuff? Oh, my gosh. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. I mean, uh, how, how they worded it while implicitly leaving it open. <laughs> if they mean like doing it while denying it, yes, because 
that's what was happening. Um, Joseph was publicly denying it. And, and the spiritual wifery is like a scapegoat, in my opinion. It's the whole John C. Bennett term that, I mean, John C. Bennett was going to other towns and he was telling women, like, it's cool. You can sleep with me. Uh, you'll be my spiritual wife. And we condemn that. And yet Joseph was doing the same thing. He was, tar- he was allegedly tarred and feathered for the same thing. And so it's funny like that, that the church now and back then got really hung up on these terms like spiritual wifery and marriage and like celestial marriage. And Joseph depended on those terms to kind of do this double speak. Um, like when Emma was condemning polygamy to the Relief Society, uh, Joseph was saying, yeah, yeah, polygamy is terrible, but plural marriage is awesome. And <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's, just, that's just in his head, though, that last part. But right, no, no exactly. Marriage. He plural marriage is implicitly awesome. leaves open plural right, marriage. Right, so it's polygamy is awful. Polygamy is an abomination. And then that that rest of that other part is in brackets in the brain. <laughs> right. You don't. You yeah, don't okay, I want to. I want to offer another sentence that's equally as valid as this one, right? The statement emphasized that did church practice no marital law other than monogamy while implicitly leaving open the possibility that Joseph Smith was a space alien who planned to take over the world. I mean, <laughs> it, it, anything that anything that you, you if implicitly leaving open a possibility simply means not mentioning it in any way while seeming to completely deny it, then right. we can say that Joseph left open implicitly most possibilities. <laughs> It's like the kids. It's, it's a pretty yeah. bad sentence. Yeah, it's like the kids who in, engage in alternative forms of sexuality leave implicitly open the possibility that other things like intercourse may have happened. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, can I give an example of one of the things Joseph said while implicitly leaving other possibilities open? <laughs> a favorite of mine is that he says, you know, all these people are accusing me of having multiple wives when, quote, I can find but one. Yeah. Right. right. So there are another thirty some, but I just don't know where they are right now. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a what a thing. What a thing it is for a man to be accused of adultery and having seven wives when I can find but one. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Isn't that amazing? Oh, Emma. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because, okay, I because found the number. Emma apparently was there with him at the time. Right. I found Craig Foster's uh, numbers. I don't know if this is important, but. They they claim that uh, between the years of June 1844 and 1846, 160 additional prominent Mormon leaders would take around 400 plural wives in mm. just those years. So that's the 44 to 46. Right. Yeah. And we know that it, it expanded exponentially as soon as Joseph died. But, yeah. Okay. So... So there was some dishonesty going on that the church seems to want to not explicitly acknowledge. Let's right. say rampant dishonesty. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the first people driven out of the church for telling the truth about polygamy. Not the last, but the first, right? right. I mean, a good case would be that the laws and their um, collaborators were the first. The Nauvoo Expositor was destroyed, and this is the event that directly led to Joseph Smith's death. It was destroyed for telling the truth about the stuff we're talking about here. And Joseph condemned it as, as a lie and a malicious slander and so on and so forth when it was you know, frankly, completely in keeping with what LDS.org now tells us. Right, right. Well, and I'm not, I'm not an apologist by any means, but the term dishonesty, like what we view as dishonesty, I think is sort of our construction of this. I mean, I sincerely believe that many of these leaders sincerely believe that some things are just not made for this world. And so that is that, is that space that is occupied between you know, what we tell the world and what we're really doing. Uh, some people have called it lying for the Lord 
or whatever, but Joseph did this, and then we see leaders continue to do this, and I feel like this essay is still doing it. It's this, you know, this idea of there's a lower order of marriage and then the higher order. We don't talk about it. This, the the low order of masonry and the high order of masonry, which is the temple ceremony, that kind of stuff. And so we call it dishonesty, but I think that there, there is a historical argument to be made that um, it no, this I, the, I think you're exactly right. That in other words, that mm-hmm. they think, in other words, Joseph Smith thinks he's justified here. So yes. in other words, there, so it's not that. It, it, we're just questioning whether that his you know we're questioning here from our vantage whether we think we agree with him but i think that you're absolutely right that he thinks he's justified in saying these things he thinks when he's saying i i can only see one wife that that he's he's telling this truth i have it's just like bill clinton i you know i i not have sex with that woman monica Lewinsky because i don't define oral sex you know yeah. sex or whatever so in other words if you're if you're wa- walking along that line i'm justified and i'm justified too in saying this thing that otherwise might seem deceitful because uh the end here is more important than the than the means so in other words i have to save the church that's the most important thing so and, and so and that then like you say comes down to this very day when i agree with you that the leaders in the LDS church are still largely doing this by by wanting to preserve um, this idea that Joseph Smith could have been more perfect than he obviously was, and that, frankly, leaders today are more more perfect or infallible or whatever, and occupying this position where they maybe are talking directly to God and Jesus, whether or not they they actually directly say it, they want to leave that open implicitly, and in so doing, they're doing this exact same thing. Uh, and the essay does the same thing, yeah. just like you said. Well, and and this this I mean what what you're saying is is. Right, but there's something else to it, which, I mean, there's some, this points to one of the unpopular but wonderful aspects of Joseph Smith's personality, which is that throughout his whole life, he's, he's a kind of trickster character, right? And this is, this is a guy who, who uses cleverness and guile consistently and gets a, a palpable thrill out of it. Whether we're talking about his exploits moving the plates from one place to another to get away from mobs, or, or his... Um, a clever discovery that you could run an anti-banking society in place of a bank in Kirtland, and on and on and on. This this wide this wide swath of his history shows us a figure who enjoys bending and breaking the rules and getting around the corners to get the job done in a way that he feels is clever and sophisticated and sneaky. And I th- I feel the joy of the trickster in these statements as well. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I agree with that, but I think I think what John Hamer is saying. Um, so yeah, I can have an affection for for Joseph and sort of this sort of larger than life personality, but I I see this no different than you know Packer's famous speech where you know that I quoted earlier. You know, some things that are true aren't useful. I really think that there is a strong case to argue. If you're cynical, you would say that dishonesty is inherently a part of I don't know Mormon theology. Um, and I wouldn't say that. I would say there's this idea of higher law. But again, it's that weird space where it's you, we tell the world one thing and we don't tell um, ourselves. We tell ourselves something different. And that's really uncomfortable because, you know, when I grew up in the church, like being honest meant like returning a candy bar if you took it from the store or if someone gave you too much change, you bring it back to Walmart. You know what I mean? And, uh, this is a whole other level of truth-telling, if you will. And I really think that it's so much a part of our culture and our doctrine and our theology that uh, 
we're going to see it for a long, long time. Yeah. Of course, it's it's milk before meat, right? It's the fact that the the missionary discussions teach a gospel that's fundamentally different than the gospel you learn in the temple. It's 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 okay. I mean, it is it is the way that it is the way that masonry is built, and it's the way that Mormonism is built, and it is it is a way that a lot of societies are structured, right? It, that it is a kind of a remnant of a secret society kind of flavor. And I'll, I'll just say that as a mental health professional, it has profound implications for for one's mental health to to sometimes get comfortable with with different versions of truth and candor um but but let's let's move on just because my wife is waiting for me and i <laughs> want to get uh to bed as soon as i can but but i don't want to give short shrift to this so what about um what about the time and eternity versus eternity only emphasis? I, I can't help but feel that that's got Brian Hales's fingerprints all over it. But what did you it's, guys think? He's, he's in the footnotes. Can I say just before we start, the phrase eternity only, just listen to the words for a moment. Eternity <laughs> only. I will not give you one dollar more than infinity. <laughs> <laughs> eternity only, but not now. Like eternity well, I mean. That, that, there's, I think there's an implicit understanding here, but just on its face, the language is preposterous, is all I'm saying right now. Yeah. Well, who wants, I, I who wants to talk about that? Basis, I mean, we see, like, even in Brigham Young's journal or William Clayton or anyone that wrote about this, there's this weird secret code, you know, where they would write, I can't remember the exact characters, like a T for time and an E for attorney. That's not it, but something like that. Uh, so I do think that they were concerned about it. I don't think it's like a modern construction. Like, I, I don't think Brian Hales is completely responsible, is what I'm saying. Um, but I do think it speaks to the thing we were talking about earlier. Is it gives people a loophole. It gives a space to kind of... It, like, when, when I look at Brigham Young having that space, what he did was say, yeah, all the old, ugly women I don't want to have sex with, they're going to be this character. <laughs> and all the ones I do are going to be this character. And every sort of prophet interprets this this practice differently, and I think that um, I think that 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 is what this is about for me. So I want to I want to interrogate for just a moment the idea that this is a loophole. I want to think about what kind of loophole this is. So we're saying that there there are some women that Joseph Smith married with the understanding that they would be married to someone else and be in a faithful, committed relationship with that person, but that relationship would have a deadline. And after a certain moment, that relationship would end, and this person would go off and be with someone else. So, this is a relationship where you say to your spouse, I love you, but you know, you're not quite good enough, and in 15 years, I'm going to leave you. But let's, let's be together for the next 15 years. This puts this, these women and their other husbands in a situation of perpetual infidelity for the rest of their lives. I'm not sure how I see this as, I mean, what, what kind of loophole is this? Just speaking from a, a modern normative perspective, right? I think it's a I'm loophole. not sure. Whatever you want, that's that's the loophole. Like if you want to be with a woman temporarily yes. for 15 years, there's your loophole. And if you want to, you know, on the spur of the moment, when you're having a sort of jo jovial conversation with Brigham Young, say, "Yeah, seal me to your older sister that I will never sleep with." That's the loophole. You can do whatever you want. It's about power. Oh, absolutely. I see, I see absolutely the work this is doing for the men at the time. But what but I'm wondering is the what's the work it's now. doing for us now? Well, the loophole now, though, what the work it's doing now is in, in the essay is for the 
contemporary 21st century Mormon sexual, you know, whatever, whatever we we're at, you know, where, where people are very worried about sex in, you know, in modern, mm-hmm. modern Mormonism. And, and so what the loophole is doing is saying, well, since the, since we have these different types, we can say that we don't think that Joseph Smith was having sex with the women that were already married to other people. And we don't think that Joseph Smith was having sex with the extremely young girls that he's marrying. Well, and so that, I think the loophole yeah. is being used here in that, in that. Yeah, it is clear. In let's that see, way, let's in the see. Essence, this this seems to me to be just I mean there's there's some kind of huge privileging of the actual physical act of sex and I think you're exactly right that that's what's going on, Mormons but the idea that, that no way yeah right the idea that being married when you're 14 it's fine wait not 14 the, several months before several months birthday. before you're 15 not when 14. you're 14 yes <laughs> when you're 14 you get married but it's fine because you know. You're not going to have sex for a while. And you know you're married. And in fact, you know you're married to a man substantially older than you. And you're married forever. But, you know, no biggie. You haven't had sex. An argument in Helen Marr's case. One of the most chilling parts of her story was when she talks about going to a dance and not being allowed to go to a dance because she's now a married woman. Exactly. Either way, whether she's having sex with Joseph or not, her sexuality is still being policed and controlled because of her marriage. And that, for me, is a huge problem. And there's, I also want to point out that they, they don't say, like, being married at 14 is okay. They use the word legal. And we've got to remember, yeah. like, bigamy is illegal. Like, <laughs> no, exactly. None of these marriages are legal. <laughs> Joseph Smith's legal marriage was only to Emma, right? Right. Yeah. No, no, I think you're exactly right. Even if these marriages were not sexual, which in the case of Helen Mark Kimball, there's simply no reason to think it wasn't. But even if we think it wasn't, it was a marriage in every other way. And the the social and emotional and sexual consequences of that are huge and, and vastly overwhelm the the other details that we somehow feel were being spared. Yeah. And, and, yet, and I guess I also, with this time in eternity business, I also think that that also is a a, a retrospectively cleaning up of a very messy practice that right. was evolving in at the time period. And so, you know, when at the beginning, this the, when they're t- talking about this revelation, there's no idea, uh, you know, in 1831 of of time or eternity. There's no idea of eternity at all in these things. And so, no, right. the idea that there that by the time you get in a little ways in this essay, there's like all of these weasel words or whatever that we're speculating. Well, maybe some were just for time, maybe some were for eternity, maybe if it's just for eternity, there was no sex. But then by the time you, the next paragraph you get to it, it's like, and so this one was an eternity one, so it's clearly there was no sex. You know, in other words, so they once they've set up the framework, then then the conclusion is no sex, and that's obviously the goal that they're trying to get to with it. So. Right. Yeah. And they do but the I, same thing with divorce. Like, they, it's yes. so funny. Like, they have this modern perspective of divorce because, like, they're talking, like, Joseph married these women, and in your mind, you're thinking, like, they were his wives for all eternity. That, like, there were so many failed marriages, and women are g- coming in and out, and they're coming back, and not just with Joseph, yeah. but with all of these men. Divorce was not the same thing as the essay is like saying divorce is. So that's a huge contemporary, you know, redirection of the term. Yeah. Well, and the treatment of, of these poly, uh, I guess, you know, poly everything marriages, right? Because they're polygamous to begin with, and then some of them are polyandrous. So these are just network marriages or something. But the, the, we call them polyandrous marriages um, is, is extremely 
brief and kid gloves in this essay. Yeah. So, you know, they, they want to say that they, he was married to some women who are already married, and we don't know anything about this, although, in fact, we know quite a lot about some of the cases. I can understand why LDS.org doesn't want to include the narrative that Joseph married a woman while her husband was on a mission that he'd called him on, but that happened. Right. <laughs> you know, this, these, these, these relationships are not simple, clean extensions of, you know, the, 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 the story that Brian Hales likes to tell is of one woman who um, the man said, well, why don't you take my wife in the next life? Because he didn't apparently value the next life very much. And so it was kind of a joke in his mind, and it's all fine. A kind of joke among friends, and then he marries the woman for eternity. And, and again, um, it shows inherent sexism in the church to be af afraid of this, because we're more mortified that some other man's wife might be sleeping with some other man then we are like the abuses that a lot of these other women face. Like absolutely we out about polyandry, and and I understand like because marriage is a sacred covenant, but there is sexism. Like oh my gosh, a man had to share her too. What? <laughs> so Emma Emma was aware of at most a handful of Joseph's wives, but she was being cheated on continuously through the Nauvoo period. With her best and friend. and. Yes, exactly. With her best friends, with women living under her house, women she took in herself, and 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 um, this is going on constantly around her, and and um, we're supposed to be disproportionately upset because of these other these women. What and you know, I'm going to say though, a couple of the polyandry stories are very hard. Ziana Diantha Huntington Jacob Smith's young story is very hard, um, well, and what what it did with her more of a man than maybe uh, this wouldn't have happened. Just ask for Of course, of course. He was obviously a terrible failure and, and certainly undesirable in every way. I mean, that's obviously the, um, that's the historical record, right? <laughs> but, um, but what happened to him is terrible. And, you know, the, the bits and pieces we have from Zina's perspective, uh, that, that's a relationship that was broken, not by their choice entirely. And, um, that is tragic, but what happened with Emma and these <laughs> these many deceptions and many wives is is I'm going to say an order of magnitude more tragic. And you know this this essay wants to dance around that when this the, is one of our best documented things about polygamy in this period. The the essay actually says goes to, actually is I don't know I don't want to, I don't want to say has the balls to say <laughs> I don't know <laughs> anyway what's <laughs> to say here. But Emma but Emma likely did not know about all of Joseph's ceilings. I don't yeah, know why, not. why do we need the word likely? We, I mean, we, we can say the that. The historical very, record say, shows that yeah, Emma knew about Emma a did, few of. Right. Emma <laughs> did not know. I mean, we can say, we can definitively say. Yes. <laughs> in other words, I mean, often we can say likely is nice to put in there, but anyways. We can, we can add the <laughs> historical record makes it likely that Emma chose not to know. And I what? can understand that. They, but there, there is sort of this like victim blaming that they couch this in. Like Emma really struggled with this, and Joseph did this to Emma too. This whole gaslighting, like you're not faithful enough. If you were more faithful, you would be on board. But yeah. they, they seem to be like, yeah, she really struggled with it. That's why she couldn't know about this. I mean, it's kind. Of, they don't say that directly, but I got that sense. Like, yeah, you know, Emma, she just if she had been more up there on Joseph's level, then maybe she could have handled it. And at least that is the framing that I take away from it, which is really offensive. Yeah. So the justifications that they give for polyandry were that the husbands were okay with it, that it was about ceilings and connecting a family, 
that it would actually this is really creative that it was a way to not have to have sex but yeah, then, that's actually a hilarious idea because <laughs> I mean Brigham Young and many others had all kinds of wives they never had sex with without any polyandry involved. I mean, if if this is all about creating eternal relationships, yeah. I, I don't know why but, you need sex. But then it goes on to say that the Lord forced Joseph to go back and have sex, right? I mean, isn't that right, what the article suggested? Right. The angel the angel <laughs> reprimanded Joseph for having demurred. God gets mad that Joseph was not having the sex he needed to have. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. Two explicitly states that the purpose of this is to raise up seed, right? Right. What no, so this is hilarious to me, right? Like, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, because the article, like you say, the framework of the article at the end, when we get to the conclusion, it's the whole purposes of polygamy is to raise up seed, and yet the whole purpose of the article was to Just try to, to say explain that, no that, Joseph, that Joseph Smith didn't have sex. <laughs> exactly. Well, and there's something else that's funny here. So, if polygamy is a temporary aberration as the article frames it and if the purpose of polygamy is to raise up seed then why should polygamy be an eternal relationship you're taking a 20 30 40 year need to have a whole bunch of mormon babies and then sticking a bunch of women in a polygamous relationship forever in order to meet that temporary need mormons you're drunk go home like i mean i'm serious like we know we know now that polygamous relationships tended to have less children than uh, monogamous ones did, right? Yeah, so Brigham had like one or two kids per wife, right? Yeah, and you know, yeah, on average, had, they had right. Brigham had like what fifty six kids, but he had fifty five wives. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Well, so no, it's it's yeah. it's natural. You, you you know you're you're not going to have quite as many kids if you have a whole well, bunch so, of wives. It's just the way it goes. Yeah. So the so the essay here. Um, suggests otherwise. You have to go through the footnotes and they footnote to the next one of the essays that we're, you guys yeah. are going to talk about in a future essay. So the suggestion that they make demographically here is that yes, all of the um, the women in plural marriages other than the first wife have fewer uh, children on average with their with the polygamist husband, but they mm -hmm. tend to remarry more, which that may well be the case. And so then they remarry and then they have a bunch of kids in the whole course of their um, the whole course of their life. So, I mean, one of the ways that demographically polygamous societies work is that the women are ultimately, um, they're polygamous with their polyandrous serially because they'll marry an old high-status patriarch when they're quite young. And then, and then they'll become a widow very early, and then they'll marry, have a succession of marriages and have, have multiple children by multiple husbands over the course of their Oh, right. good. That's what women on the frontier needed were more babies through the birth canal with less medical treatment. And, and you know with less paternal support, because if you're talking about this, this serial polygamy thing, not only do you have a, a father who's shared with a whole bunch of other wives, you also, in many cases, have a father who was very old and died. So what, oh, yeah. they're, they're, what they're saying is polygamy doesn't work. That's what they're saying. Yeah. They're saying, yeah. you know what, Like it's, it's really for men to have children with these women but it these women Doesn't are not actually yeah and then and then the final justification they give for both polygamy and polyandry is that it was just a test and an opportunity for extra blessings and i just have to admit i hate that argument well it's it's um inarguable yeah. there's nothing we can say to disprove that no it's true but i just hate it reminds me of jim jones and how he used to 
you know, test people that they might drink poison Kool-Aid before he actually did introduce the poison Kool-Aid, you know. Oh, come on. Let's, let's, let's have it remind us of something less, less horrible than that. <laughs> Sorry. It, it reminds me of the Oneida community and it's incredible tests of faithfulness, which I encourage all listeners to go read about. <laughs> I do right. have thing, can I say one thing about sources really quick? Sure, please. Yeah. I saw John Hatch was talking about this. He was super frustrated that the church was apparently using closed archive sources. Do you guys mm-hmm. want to say anything about that? Like, because there's a problem with not having sources that everyone can sort of peer review and check out. And well, for that matter, I mean, yeah. So with peer review, there's there's the fact that they're relying on on Brian Hales's work, which is very new and controversial, and stating it baldly as a fact when it's when it's a debated interpretation that that and and then there's the yeah the, uh, john hamer do you want to speak to the the sources question you know i i guess i i guess i did not know um i mean in some ways this is not a this is not a peer-reviewed article it's not an academic no. article it's the church they're putting all these footnotes in to make people maybe feel that way but this is the church's own website explanation so yeah i don't know in some ways i don't think that it's necessary for them to do that like i said at the end of the day it has this has the this is a way to um take the evidence that we have and try to walk through the landmine field and come out with the most positive uh, interpretation you could possibly make on or at least give Joseph an out at every turn even in some cases you have to give him like five different possible outs you know as, mm-hmm. as they're kind of going through this essay but that's not how history is done in other words history instead what we do is we look at what's the um, what's the most likely scenario given the evidence and that's not what's being done here yeah, at all of course yeah. Absolutely. You know this is, is going to be Lindsay grumpy cat feminist women mm. women lose wah yep. wah <laughs> no, it's for sure. I mean, this of, of the polar marriage essays, this is the best one for women because a lot of women's names are mentioned. But you don't even get quotes from the women mostly. Yeah. I was happy to see Todd Compton's work referenced, right? That was kind of a win, right? Yeah. A little bit? Well, I'm glad that they're referencing that, and I think that actually we were we were kind of referencing it, and I think that we should re- just remember, remind anybody who hasn't read In Sacred Loneliness to go read it right now. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to know about this topic, you should be reading that book. And in that book, you will hear the voices of these people, and they, they will become individuals and not just a number. And that's that's something that I, I really do miss in this essay. I understand why it's not there, but I mean... These women enabled Joseph Smith to live his prophetic calling, and they're every bit as much a part of it as he is. And it's not fair to not have them be more prominent in the discussion of their lives than this. Yeah. Well, it's okay because they're more unreliable. We don't know if they're. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So, so the conclusion. I'll just summarize it, and then I'll have you guys each give your parting thoughts. The conclusion basically said. Number one, it's important to note that church members no longer practice plural marriage, which I take exception to because they kind of still are, um, you know, people getting married and sealed for the afterlife, including a couple of our current apostles. It says that in the very next sentence. No, I know, I know, but but I mean, it, it's <laughs> although sort of that contra- was that was a late addition, I would note it, that it, was added after the first publication of this on the website. Oh, yeah, okay. It's kind of a, but it's kind of a contradiction. Two sentences that kind of contradict each other. I think it, a little it, bit. Uh, it is, yeah. yeah. Contradict or the higher law. Remember? <laughs> yes, that's right. You get the milk, the milk, and then the meat right a row, in a row. Two sentences, one after the other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then it kind of ends by basically just saying, but don't worry, it's all going to be sorted out in the next life and trust, trust your heavenly father. And when they say that, they actually mean trust the current leadership. So 
that, that, that's kind of how I took the ending. Now, what I want to do is give each of you guys a chance to um, to give your closing statements about the essay or anything I've left out. And I want Lindsay to have the last word because she's an awesome woman. And so that means it's going to be Jay, then John, then Lindsay. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I think we've said an awful lot of what there is to say here. I mean, I think it's it's great that we're having a more honest and open discussion about what is frankly the foundational issue of the church. We see, we like to think of ourselves as a church that's founded in the Book of Mormon, but the churches we have it today in the LDS church is much more the church that came out of polygamy than it is a church that came out of the Book of Mormon. We can look at the wide variety of different kinds of churches that, that have descended from the Book of Mormon. That's the, the LDS church is very different from most of them. We are very much like the churches that have come out of the polygamous world, and that's, this is our origin story. And the idea that we can at least talk about it at least once in a while on an obscure website um, is a huge step forward. I recognize the institutional political reasons why the, the text needs to be as frustrating and one-sided and and polemical in a way as it is. And I hope that um, people who are listening to this will have read a lot more and a lot better things than this. And if they haven't, they need to, because you, you care, right? If you've listened to two hours of us talking, then you care. And there are better texts easily available, but I'm happy that this is put in a place where people will trust it. Beautiful. John Hamer. Well, I guess at, we've talked, like you say, a lot about a lot of these issues already. But one of the things we didn't talk too much about as is is how the characterization of Emma in this, and and so as a person who's a member of Emma's church, the Community of Christ, I guess I'm, I'm I I don't like the 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 Emma is just viewed here or, or can constantly brought portrayed as someone who's just vacillating. Uh, you know, she just she she. First, she objects to polygamy. Then she, you know, is accepting it. Then she objects to it. Then she's accepting it. All those kind of things. That's what it's kind of phrased here. And, and I, and I think that it, it, it minimizes, um, you know, the the incredible hardship that she is is just faced with. And 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 it also is busily um, making Joseph into an uh, equal victim with her. And so she, you know, her. And so, anyway, it, like it's also this whole issue is also foundational for the other churches. It's foundational for Community of Christ because all of the people who um, remained very very faithful um, to the Restoration but did not um, go west because of this. They did not go west because of this issue. So they were opponents of polygamy, and that's and that they stayed behind, and that formed into the community of Christ. So. Beautiful, um, Lindsay. Give us the final word. Okay. Well, uh, to talk about the ceilings, I'm really glad that they acknowledge that we still have plural ceilings that continue. Yeah. So one thing that I want that I, if I'm going to, you know, be an activist on this, like. If we're saying that it'll all be sorted out in heaven, then why not like equalize the practice and let women be sealed to more than one man? Because right. it's all going to be worked out. So what's what's <laughs> the big deal? But uh, I I agree. Openness is always a good thing. I would encourage people to study and study some more. And we should always be studying this stuff. I think it, every Mormon needs to come to grips and dig through this history. Like that's why I've been doing my series. It's it's critical. And uh, we need to learn to think, I think, um, and polygamy really helps us do that. And that's why I appreciate the community of Christ, because they have done the hard work. They are the ones that have accepted the flaws and the humanness of these, of these people, and it's made them better. It's made them humble, more open, more kind, in my, in my opinion, 
than a lot of LDS people that I know. And I feel like that's the work that we need to do as LDS people. We need to start, instead of condemning people for their flaws, sort of embracing them and understanding that we're all that way. And I would really like to see the church take the lead on that. So, Lindsay, give us a URL for your podcast. It's the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.org. Catchy, I know. And it's the Year of Polygamy series. John Hammer, give us a URL for the Community of Christ. Um, well, it's it's seaofchrist.org. Seaofchrist.org. Right. All right. Isn't it? Okay. <laughs> I think so. My, the one here in Canada is communityofchrist.ca. Okay. But anyway. And, and J. Nelson Seawright, just give us a random website that you want to point us to. Mormonstories.org. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us. I love you three immensely. I'm proud to have you on. I love this discussion. I'm sorry I had to hurry, but my wife is about to kill me. And <laughs> I want my listeners to please go up to the website and comment if they have comments. We'd love to continue this discussion online. And most importantly, know that this is only the first of three discussions we're going to have with some or all of the current panelists where we're going to talk about the other two essays so thank you all for joining us uh, love to all the listeners and stay tuned for more excellent programming on mormon stories uh, thanks so much for everyone's support take care guys thanks thanks, thanks for joining us today on mormon stories if you enjoyed this episode please help us make more like it by becoming a monthly subscriber at mormonstories.org Music for this episode was provided by the Lower Lights. When other sources cease to make me whole When with a wounded heart